Last week, we started talking about the church at Pergamum. And we started talking about compromise and what we allow into our lives, what we allow into our church. And a few years back, on the cover of Christianity Today, was the cover that asked the question, Are you tolerant? And then in parenthesis, it said, Should you be? And that's a good question. Are you tolerant? And should you be? Because tolerance has taken on a whole new meaning in the last 10-15 years than it did 30 years ago. 30 years ago, tolerance was all about, you know, just sort of putting up with someone you, 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 you almost couldn't stand, but you know, in, in Christian love, I'm gonna put up with you, and sort of, sort of like the, 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 you know, truce we have between Dodgers and Angels fans. We, we tolerate each other. But now, tolerance has come up with a new meaning. If someone talks about tolerance, what are they meaning? They are meaning acceptance and approval, aren't they? If I'm tolerant of someone, now I accept their lifestyle, I approve of their lifestyle, and somehow give credibility to who they are or in that lifestyle, in that sin. And so the words have changed. The definition, the words are the same. The definitions have changed in an attempt to undermine our beliefs and our stances. Saw evidence of that this week, and especially after our, our discussion last week on, on some of the political issues that we stand for as a church and should stand against. Um, saw a YouTube video of a group, it's a um, homosexual rights group, that is attacking one of the professors at Biola because he had the nerve to call homosexuality sin. It was at a panel, and in this panel, they, they asked, well, why isn't um, someone th- um, that stands for homosexual rights on your panel? And Eric Tonis said, well, that's because we believe homosexuality is sin, just like any other sins, and so we wouldn't give that a voice because sin is to be stood against. And now there's this outcry and there's this petition against him at Biola, and it, it's amazing to see what is happening because he wasn't tolerant, praise God. Because he stood for truth. And so we are in an environment where compromise has become normal and standing for truth has become the exception. And so we come to this next church, the church at Thyatira, who has, is an example of compromise to the next level. Whereas Pergamum was, they just sort of allowed something in their midst and, and their mindset was changing. In Thyatira, we see full-blown compromise. And so this morning, we want to look at Thyatira and look at God's response to Thyatira. And as we do, examine our own lives and examine compromise in our own lives and are there areas of compromise. And just right up front, as we talk about compromise, I want to be very clear, this is not a message for someone else in the congregation. So if we sit here and say, you know, I hope so-and-so is listening, because, man, they sure need this one, then we've missed the point of the letters to the churches, the letters to us, the letters that ask us to examine our own hearts first and make sure the two-by-four in our own eye is taken care of. So that's the tone that we want to come to the church at Thyatira and say, what does God want for His church? A couple of things about Thyatira first. We've been trying to give you a little bit of a background. Thyatira is the modern city of Akazar in Asia Minor. And quite frankly, we don't have a lot to show you about Thyatira. The thing is, they built a modern city on top of the ancient city. 
And there are problems with excavations when you have a modern city built on top of an ancient city. In fact, we only have one site that's excavated. The problems are someone's house is on top of the old city. And people don't care for it when you come into their living room with a backhoe and say, I'd like to dig. And so we don't have a lot in Thyatira of digging. And it was a smaller city. We have a few things. I wanted to show um, a, a few pictures of the one dig site that they have. Remember, he's writing to the seven churches. He's over here in exile on Patmos. And he writes to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum is what we've talked about so far. And these follow a road. And then there's a major road that goes from Pergamum, Pergamum to Thyatira. And actually that major road comes to the rest of Asia Minor. And so today we're talking about Thyatira, which ended up being a pretty small little city. It's probably the least important city out of all the seven that we're talking about. It was built on a large fertile plain. And and because of that, commerce and trade and industry was very important. However, when the Romans first took it over, they thought, okay, Pergamum is our capital. Remember last week. And so Thyatira is going to protect our capital. And so they, they established a military garrison at Thyatira to try to protect Pergamum. The problem is location, location, location. When it comes to defending a city, especially without modern weapons, you needed things like hills or caves or some defensible location. Remember where I said Thyatira was? Out in the middle of a plain. Okay? So it's just like, any army could come and trample it whenever they wanted. And so this, this military garrison kept getting overrun and overrun and overrun whenever there was a war. Now with the Romans, with the Pax Romana, the time of peace, Thyatira flourished because they didn't have to worry about being overrun the next time. And so because they were in this fertile plain, they become, became the leading center for industry of the area. So we talked about Ephesus would be like a Los Angeles. Um, Pergamum would be like a Washington, D.C., the political capital. Thyatira, you could either go with the cornfields of Iowa or Wall Street. You know, take your choice, but you get the idea. It's a center of industry. A couple pictures from Thyatira. You can see the modern city in the background. And they had one little area where they were able to excavate. And in fact... All of the pictures are from this one little area. And you see some of their pillars because it was a Roman town. In the back, you see the remnants of what might have been a church. This is that church in the back or that building in the back. Um, some of the pillars. And this would have been one of those roads that had the pillars all the way down it. We saw it in Ephesus. We saw it in a number of the cities. And so you can see all the pillars, right, in the road. They had archways, and so it was, it was actually well built at the time. We just don't have much of it left. Some broken pottery that will be an image that we'll see God use in his letter to the church. So that's a little bit about Thyatira. Um, one of the things that Thyatira is known for with, within the industry, and this fits into the industry, is their trade guilds. And so because they were so focused on industry, what happened is each of the industries came up with their own guild, or or maybe you'd think of it like a union, where everyone that was part of that trade became part of that guild. In fact, if you were going to trade, 
if you were going to do business in Thyatira, you became part of this guild and part of what they were doing there. The town was laid out in squares. And in, inside each of the squares, different guilds would take different spaces. And that would be their space for, for civic life, for trade, for industry. And so a guild was a cross between a, a work organization and a club. It was where you had your associations. Various inscriptions have been found there, so we know that some of the guilds in Thyatira were wool workers, linen workers, maker of outer garments, dyers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, slave dealers, and bronze smiths. It's a city that was also known for dyeing purple cloths. Do you remember who was from, from Thyatira? Lydia. Lydia. Absolutely. <laughs> well, a different Lydia. <laughs> but welcome this morning. <laughs> And one of the things about, about these guilds, and, and we'll, we'll get into this a little bit more in the text, is each of the guilds had a patron god. And that was a pagan god. And part of the guild's life was to celebrate their patron god one, two, maybe three or four times a year. And they would celebrate with a pagan feast and with all of the revelries that went into that. Drunkenness, sexual immorality. And that was guild life. And if you did business, you had to be part of the guild. If you avoided guild life, if you avoided these celebrations, you didn't work. So do you see the pressure? It's setting up what's happening in Thyatira. We've seen political pressure in some towns. We've seen religious pressure in some towns. This is economic pressure. And so a very different kind of opportunity for compromise. Let's jump into the text. Revelation 2. Turn with me to Revelation 2, verse 18. Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. If you don't have a Bible this morning, you're welcome to grab one from the seat, um, the, the little tray under the seat. And, and again, if you don't have a Bible, if you don't own one, please take that one home. It's our gift to you as an opportunity for God's Word to um, be alive and well in your heart and in your home. Revelation chapter 2. We'll start at verse 18, and he follows the same pattern that he follows with the other letters. And so we'll just follow that pattern. And, and as we do, we'll, we'll get into some talk about compromise and some observations about compromise. But he starts with the characteristic of Christ in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. What comes to mind, just think for a moment, what comes to mind when you hear those titles? What? Bright, flames of fire. Fierce. Fierce, thank you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Absolutely. He is coming when you, when eyes like flames of fire, feet like burnished bronze, these are images of strength. This is also the only letter where Christ is described as the Son of God. The Son of God. And He's bringing back His authority. He's bringing, this is an image that says, I am the Messiah. Now keep in mind, the only deity that they really did celebrate in, in Thyatira was Apollo. And Apollo was the son of Zeus. That was his claim to fame. And so many think that this was a direct countering of Apollo. Oh, he's the son of Zeus. Well, Jesus Christ is the son of God. 
And this is a statement of His authority and His power. Eyes like flames of fire, all-seeing, searching, and angry. And so in your blank, I would put the the divine, all-seeing judge is how Christ describes Himself. The divine, all-seeing judge. In Hebrews 4.13, we read, And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. And this is a this is a concept that they had when you talked about eyes searching. It was that he saw everything we do. He saw everything that was happening at the church at Thyatira. He saw the good. He saw the compromise. And then the feet are like burnished bronze. I think of judgment, stomping, strength. And then they would have understand burnished bronze. One of their guilds made bronze out of copper and zinc probably. And so this was something that would have been, okay, I understand that. But it's it's a statement of strength. You know, I've seen eyes like fire and feet like bronze before. I, I don't know if you've ever seen it. When I was young and living at home, all I had to do was say something to my mom like, no, I'm not going to do that. I know what's better. Or don't tell me what to do. And I could look over at my dad and see eyes like flames of fire and feet like burnished bronze. As he got up and was walking toward me, I knew, uh uh-oh. Because disrespect of my mother was not tolerated in our home. And I knew that that crossed the line and what that would bring out in dad. Just as an aside, dads, your job is to protect your wives. Your job one of your jobs is to make sure that your kids respect her, protect her honor, protect her from disrespect. But I saw that in Dan, and so I, I totally understand. That's what I think of when I think eyes like flames of fire and feet like burnished bronze. I've sinned, I've blown it, and, and Dad's going to come take care of it. In this case, they've blown it, and God's going to come take care of it. Do you see the imagery? Do you see the picture? And so that's how Christ introduces Himself. We move on to verse 19, and this is the commendation. And other than a couple of the churches, Christ always encourages the church first. This is what you're doing well. And we can learn so much from that style of, of, of encouragement and exhortation. But the commendation of verse 19, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. It's a great commendation. Basically saying the core was growing in God's works. The core of the church was growing in God's works. Do you catch the four things that he lists as God's works? First is your love. And and these are things that Christ is commending for the church. And we should listen to these. We don't want to skip the commendation. Because Christ is saying, I like this in a church. And if he liked it then, he likes it now. And so the first thing he says, I commend you for your love. And this probably is love for God and love for each other. In fact, the two are always related. If we love God, we will love each other. And so he's commending them that they are taking care of each other. They're loving each other. It's a little bit as as opposed to Ephesus, who had lost their first love. Second thing he commends them for is their faith. And faith is a knowledge of God and a trust in God. And so they're loving each other. 
They're growing deeper in their faith. Third thing he commends them for is service. Service, which comes from the Greek word diakonos, which is where we get deacon, deaconess. And the idea is one that serves another. It was sometimes used for a butler or a table waiter. And this is someone that is active in the life and care of another without complaint, without expecting anything returned, but just sees a need and does it. We have people like that, don't we? They're, they're just, their radars go, whoop, there's a need, and they're fixing it before anyone else even knows. It's what the church was like. It's what we all should be like. So they're serving each other. I'd love to help. I'm willing to help. I'm looking for ways to help. Finally, the fourth thing that is commended here is patient endurance. Patient endurance. They didn't grow weary of doing good. It's easy to do, isn't it? We get tired of always helping. We get tired of doing good. And they didn't. They kept persevering. Two years ago, there was a a marathon in Toronto, Canada, and a hundred-year-old man signed up. I'm going to run a marathon. Now, probably he had done some training ahead of time. You don't just wake up and run a marathon. And this man ran this marathon. He became the oldest person to ever complete a full marathon. Took him eight hours, but he finished. What a great example of perseverance. Of saying, I am going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. And so these things are commended for the, at the church in Thyatira. And all of them, and look at verse 19, I know your works. And you can underline that or highlight that word works because that is the theme that runs throughout this entire letter. And Christ is setting up a comparison between those that are doing my works and and the things that are taking you away from doing my works. You're going to see that theme with words like service, words like ministry, works of Satan, works of God. I know your works, and then he defines it, four different things. Your love, faith, and service, and patient endurance. And that your latter works exceed the first. Remember Ephesus? Their issue was their latter works were tailing off. They lost their first love. This is a church that's growing in these things. Doing better every year. And this is a vibrant church. This is exciting to see. A lot of things are going well. People are living life on purpose for His purpose. The core people, at least, in the life of the church. And so when we think of a church, we want to be a growing church, but we want to be growing in these ways. Are we loving each other? Are we showing love to God and others more today than yesterday? Are we committed to knowing what we believe, to actually opening God's Word, reading it, and studying it? Are we serving in the church? Because serving is part of growth, and without serving there isn't growth. Discipleship comes to mind. One of the ways to serve is to disciple. And finally, do we keep from letting anything stop us? Do we persevere? So in application there, look for ways to show more love for each other, deepen your faith, and serve God with more of your life and keep doing it. That verse is enough. And if we just focused on those things, it would be incredible to see. But unfortunately, Satan didn't like those things. And Satan was actively looking for a way to stop them from being effective in God's work. 
and introduce compromise and sin that would undermine everything that God was doing through this little church in Thyatira. And so we come to the criticism in verse 20. Verse 20, let's read it together. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Man, he just jumps right in there into a stinging rebuke of this church. And the criticism there in your notes, they have not only allowed compromise, but have embraced it. They have not only allowed compromise, but have embraced it. Last week we talked about the hikers that were lost in the local mountains. And how do you end up down a ravine when it's on a well-worn trail? And we talked about how it just, it starts with one step off the path. Maybe you're not paying attention. And if you just start to veer a little bit, five or six steps down the path, maybe you go off the edge into a canyon. And, and we know that the canyons they were in had steep walls. Which is why today I, I called it into the ravine. Whereas Pergamum had taken a couple steps, Thyatira has gone further and has fallen into the ravine. Has fallen into sin. And so we see they have not only allowed compromise, but have embraced it. They have not put out the one leading others into sin, but they've rather tolerated and accepted her. I mean, imagine if you're a parent and you are seeing someone give your child something that will harm them. You say, that's okay. Come on into my home, in fact. They, they need some more of that. And they're harming your child. No, as a parent, what would you do? You would stand and you would protect your children. And this church wasn't doing that. And so they're called on the carpet by God Almighty, saying, let's talk. A couple of words there, a couple of things to explore, but I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. And in the Greek, that word tolerate, it's, it's more accepting than our word tolerate. It means to accept, to support, to allow with approval. Think of what she was teaching. She was teaching that sexual immorality is okay, probably in the worship of these idols, because you'd go in with the temple prostitutes, you'd have sex, and that was part of the worship. That eating meat to idols, probably again in the worship of of false gods, was okay. How do you tolerate that? How do you accept that? How do you give that a platform? But they had gone down several steps into compromise. It's a disturbing word. A disturbing picture of what is happening here. Now this woman probably wasn't named Jezebel. Just like last week, the the people probably weren't named Balaam. This is a reference to the Old Testament Jezebel where, where John here is painting a picture of what this woman is like. But it probably was an actual person. You, you see singular pronouns and other wording there that indicates that this was a real situation, a real person, something that was happening in the church. Do you remember Jezebel in the Old Testament? She married King Ahab, who was the king of the northern kingdom. And turn, turn to 1 Kings 16. Let's read some of what Jezebel was like. 1 Kings chapter 16. Verse 31. First Kings, 
16, verse 31. This is talking about when Ahab married Jezebel. And it reads, And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, so he, he's taking sin lightly, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. So he sees a woman, sort of the same pattern as last week, sees a woman, the woman says, hey, let's worship Baal. And he's like, I love her, let's do this. And he worships Baal. And we see even her name, who was her father? Ethbaal, which is someone that worships Baal. And he didn't just worship Baal, but in 32, he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah, which was a pole that was signifying this was a holy place and it was a, a, an item of worship. Catch the next phrase. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all of the kings of Israel who were before him. Love to see that on your tombstone. Because he compromised. Now we know that Jezebel brought in these things and she went on an active course of action to get all of Israel or as many in Israel to walk away from God and worship Baal as she could. She chased prophets down to try to kill them. This was not a nice woman. She incited these things. In 1 Kings 21-25, we read, There is none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel his wife incited. And so she's actively leading him away from God Almighty to false gods. There's all kinds of other things. It was written in 2 Kings. What peace can there be so long as the whorings and sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? So Jezebel was not a nice figure in in Israel's history. Just like you probably wouldn't name your son Judas, you would never name your daughter Jezebel. And that's what Christ calls this woman. And so he's trying to shake the church out of apathy to realize what she was really like. It's interesting, a couple things there. She's a prophetess. At least calls herself a prophetess. And she's teaching in the church. And so you have someone who has walked away from God that is in a position of, if not leadership, at least influence in the church. A prophetess would say, I speak for God. My words are God's words. A little arrogant? Absolutely. Be like me saying, instead of thus saith the Lord, thus saith Ron. You need to follow it. No, it's, it's about thus saith the Lord. And so she held a respected position in the church while leading people into sin. Does that bother anyone? It should bother us incredibly. Into these acts. See, last week we talked that it was, it became okay for people to live one way during the week or to think one thing during the week and another on Sunday. Now it's okay just to come on Sunday and follow someone into sin. It's the next step toward compromise. I have this against you. You tolerate or accept, approve of the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing and catch the next two words, my servants. 
my servants, my slaves, those that are serving me. And here again, it's coming back to the works of God. Those that are serving God versus those that are serving Jezebel. And he's intentionally setting up a war between the two, a contrast between the two. And, and God is so upset because she is bringing people away from serving God. It's a deliberate attempt to stop God's purposes. And God will not allow that to happen. some points, some observations about compromise. And you may be looking at your notes thinking there's nine of them and we have 20 minutes left. We're toast. I want to go through these quickly and just give some ideas about compromise to start us being aware of what could be happening in our own lives. The first application that we see out of this verse and this story, small compromises usually lead to greater sins. The cliff is steep and a step off goes down a long way. Small compromises usually lead to greater sins. Understand the seriousness of small compromises. See, compromise doesn't happen quickly. It rarely happens quickly, but little by little. If Satan can get us to make one little compromise in one area and then become comfortable with that, then all he has to do is get us to take another little step from the place we are. And then all he has to do is take us another little step from the place we are. And you've heard the story of the pastor who moved the piano from one side of the church to the other, right? Actually, one pastor did it, moved it one week and got fired. And then the next pastor came in and he moved it an inch every week until two years later, the piano was on the other side of the sanctuary. Most of you probably think the piano's always been there. No. <laughs> Makes you wonder. <laughs> That's how Satan works in our lives. If I can just move you an inch, I don't have to move you a mile. Because you won't notice an inch. In this case, we saw at Pergamum, they moved an inch and just started being okay intellectually with some of the compromise. Now in Thyatira, we see the results of that as he's moved them a couple more inches. And now it's full-blown acceptance and some are participating in it. In fact, if you look ahead to the next verse, in 22 we see that she's going to be judged and then those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation. Those are that are participating in her sin. And then finally, I will in verse 23, I will strike her children dead. And those refer to the people that have just wholeheartedly accepted what she's doing and have become Jezebel evangelists. They're her followers. And so we already see the steps of compromise Blossoming in this church. See, accommodation leads to acceptance. And acceptance leads to participation. Accommodation leads to acceptance. Acceptance leads to participation. If you really want them all to be A's, acceptance leads to acquisition. Doesn't quite make sense, but for those of you that like alliteration, it's the little steps that we want to watch out for. It's the little things. This was a business environment. It's the little things like your boss coming and saying, I need you to adjust that quote a little bit and leave something out. We need that job. We'll cut a few corners. And you have a moment of, will I take a little step of compromise? 
It's the moment when we have to take a stand for something. I, I know, I know one gentleman I was talking to said they, they were bypassed for a promotion at work because they refused to do business the way the company thought would make them more money. And it was wrong. The result of that was respect, though, by the workers and a witness that lasted for years. What are little areas of compromise? Little things in our entertainment choices that we're suddenly okay with. And I think one of the areas Satan attacks us individually and the church is in our language. Because so many things have become acceptable. I think of OMG or Oh My God. And it's used all the time. And every time we use that, we are reducing the awe of the name of God. Every time. We are teaching our children in the next generation that God is not to be revered because we are making His name common. But yet I would bet half of you, half of us struggle with that because it's so common in our culture today. Language matters. How we talk about God matters. I encourage you to watch that this week. Take care of that this week. And let's honor God Almighty. But small compromises usually lead to greater sins. Number two there, leaders are special targets for compromise. Leaders are special targets for compromise. We see that in Jezebel. And if Satan can take out, can, can draw a leader into compromise, he now can draw all of the people following that leader into compromise. And so for those of you that are in leadership positions here at Village or, or elsewhere, your character matters. Standing strong matters. But you are setting yourselves up for more attacks. Because Satan's not dumb. He's, he, he knows strategy. And if he can take you down, we've seen so many Christian leaders being taken down by compromise. And people walking away from the faith because of that. Because they're disillusioned with Christianity. So we must be careful with who we allow into leadership. Next month we'll be voting on elders, deacons, and deaconesses. Leadership in the church. I would challenge you to read the biblical passages and the biblical qualifications and make sure that we are bringing people into leadership who love the Lord God Almighty beyond all else and who are not living lives of compromise. It's the first thing we look for when we look, think of ministries at Village. The first thing isn't, is this where you're really good at? The first thing is, where's your heart at? Because a heart of compromise cannot be allowed into leadership. Bad teaching can come from gifted people. It's still bad teaching. We see that with Jezebel here, a prophetess, someone that's been given a platform in the church and it's harming the church. Number three, temptation to compromise usually comes in a back door, not the front door. Temptation to compromise usually comes in a back door, not the front door. It's not direct attacks. Satan knows that we're on guard for those. This church was serving God and growing. He had to stop them somehow. So he went through the back door of commerce, through the guilds, through pressure to compromise to do business. He does the same thing with us. Whether that be choices of friends and what we laugh at with friends. Whether it's what we watch, what we listen to. If he can come in the back door and get us started down the path of compromise, he wins. 
Number four, the root of compromise is pride. The root of compromise is pride. She called herself a prophetess. We talked about that. But if you think about it, compromise is usually that I want something and I'm not going to get, so I'm going to change my, my values, I'm going to change what I do to get what I want. Compromise is almost always either self-pleasing or self-avoidance of pain. But both are self. Self-pleasing, I want this. Avoidance of pain, oh no, this is going to happen. I need to, to lie a little bit. Just change some things a little bit to avoid what's coming to me. It's expedient. For Thyatira, it would be expedient to compromise a little bit, to justify it. Well, I'm not really worshiping, but I have to do business. I have to be in the world to do business. What's the harm of of some of these, these activities? So when we use words like, well, I deserve that, or I need that, we're probably walking down a path toward compromise. Number five there, we must be willing to be a community and discipline for the sake of community. We must be willing to be a community and discipline for the sake of community. Did you catch the verse there? Verse 20. But I have this against you. This is against the church. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. You've allowed her a platform. And what's she doing? She's leading others in your community away. Church discipline is not fun. It's not, it's not pleasant. But think about this. If it doesn't happen, we are letting other people fall away. And so it's done by community, according to biblical principles, for community, for the health of community. They weren't willing to do that. And number six in this verse, compromise stops us from effectively doing God's work. Compromise stops us from effectively doing God's work. Jezebel here is trying to transfer people from doing the works of growth, the works of God, to doing the works of Satan. They're called God's servants. He uses that term on purpose because it says, you are trying to steal my servants. Not going to happen. That's the core of the passage. That's center part. But let's read on, 21 through 25. The command, the warning that basically says God will purify His church. God will purify His church. Verse 21, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Now the picture here is she's been confronted. People have approached her, which means they started church discipline, but they never finished it. Okay, so they compromised a little bit. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. She's probably participating in what she's teaching. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of their works, and I will strike her children dead. Do you catch the seriousness in those verses? God does not take compromise lightly. And then he says, why? And all the churches, all of them, will know that I am He who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. Just for fun, that phrase, searches mind and heart, literally means in the Greek, searches kidneys and hearts. 
And their kidneys represented their emotions. Their hearts represented the intellectual side, their thoughts and their mind. And so minds and hearts for us. Kidneys doesn't mean the same thing. And I will give to each according to your works. Then he comes back to the faithful. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. And so God's patience is done. He's given opportunities. He's going to come and throw Jezebel onto a sickbed, persecution. There's some debate of whether that actually means death, but probably it means that she's going to just be physically torn down as punishment for leading people astray. For those that participated, the second group, great tribulation and suffering, unless they repent, there's still hope from them. Life's going to stink unless you repent because you're following a path of compromise. Compromise is always a short-term gain and long-term ruin. Always. And finally, to her followers, her adherents, strike her children dead. And we know throughout Scripture that at times God will take people home if they are infringing on His glory, damaging His reputation. This is serious. He did that with Jezebel in the Old Testament. Finally said the dogs will eat her flesh. None will bury her. He deals with compromise seriously. And so so the last three observations about compromise, we need to tremble at God's response to compromise. We need to tremble at God's response to compromise. It's about His glory, not mine. And that's the problem with compromise is it's about my glory, my convenience. Number eight there, we need to be open to correction. Jezebel wasn't. She had been corrected. She had been told to repent. Her pride kept her from being willing to be confronted. Guys, if we're going to deal with compromise, we need each other. We need to tell someone, confront me. Tell me when I'm compromising. Tell me if these things in my life aren't pleasing God. And we need to listen to them. It's about community helping community. And finally, we see that there are some that haven't given in. And God's instruction to them is, hold fast. Hold fast. I'm not going to ask you to do anything else except keep standing up to Jezebel. Because I'm coming to deal with it. But keep standing up to her. Hold fast to truth. So number nine there is never give up vigilance. Keep your guard up. Keep your guard up. I'd like to end today by singing one last song together. And I'll read the, the Conqueror's Promise as we go into that song. But one last song together that brings us back to the holiness of God. That brings us back to, rather than the works of Satan, the works of God and what He wants for us. And it's about His holiness. It's about serving our God Almighty. In verse 26, we read, The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, it's about again serving Him and doing His purposes, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken into pieces. So eventually He's saying, righteousness wins. And those that hold firm will help rule. 
even these that are pushed down, that are marginalized probably in this church. And then verse 28, And I will give him the morning star, which represents Jesus Christ. We see that later in Revelation 22. I will give him the morning star, relationship with Christ, closeness with Christ, a life that isn't compromising, a life that serves him. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Lord God Almighty, we worship you. You are worthy. Lord, we sing a song like that right out of your word and revelation. And I wonder why we compromise and settle for so much less than God Almighty. Lord, I pray that right now you would reveal in our church areas of compromise, in our, our lives areas of compromise, and you would help us stamp them out that we can serve a living God and nothing would stand in the way of that, Lord God. May we live our lives on purpose for your purpose. That means living a life you can use. Lord God, we worship you. We worship you with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.